Welcome to the National Disability Services Sector Development Podcast. I'm Sarah Fordyce, Policy Manager at NDS, and we are here today to discuss one of the most challenging environments presently in the NDIS landscape, the interfaces between mainstream service sectors and the NDIS. Today, we will be focusing on the mainstream health services sector as it intersects with the NDIS, as this interface in particular is presenting complex challenges. I am joined by our studio guests, Bronwyn Morecambe, National Director, and Deb Farrell, Senior Advisor at Young People in Nursing Homes National Alliance, and Fiona Steele, NDIS Sector Transition Manager at Victoria from NDS. Hello, Bronwyn, Deb, and Fiona. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Sarah. The introduction of the NDIS has changed the relationships, processes and protocols developed over many years, which helped knit the disability and other service sectors together. At the interfaces between NDIS and health, housing, transport, justice, protective services and other areas, we are seeing people caught between contested funding responsibilities. This is often resulting in people relying on tertiary or acute services, with reports of people entering residential aged care or residing in hospitals or remand services for longer than they should due to a lack of appropriate service options. It is taking time and effort to develop new processes and relationships that operate effectively. There is particular concern that people with complex needs often requiring integrated services across several systems, are the most impacted in this regard. Young People in Nursing Homes and NDS recently held a joint roundtable to explore how multiple parts of the service system came together around an NDIS participant with complex and changing needs across multiple service sectors. Representatives discussed the impact on their services and how they achieved a good outcome for a participant, teasing out the key elements that facilitated this outcome. Our guests today will be reflecting on insights from the roundtable discussion around enablers operating at the interface and sharing emerging good practice. We acknowledge that working at the interface presents a range of difficulties. Bromwin, what do you see as some of the key challenges of working at the mainstream health interface with NDIS? It's a really interesting question, Sarah. I'd like to say first that I think the arrival of the NDIS offers us a terrific opportunity to really look at how we can do this um, at all because we've never had this requirement before. So we have a service system that's in all its disparate parts has never actually had to work in quite this way and isn't prepared for that, doesn't have the knowledge or the expertise to start to collaborate and partner with other areas at all. So we have an enormous challenge in front of us, but a terrific opportunity as well. Um, Having said that, I think collaboration and partnership are the keystones to anything we do in this, but an awareness that when we go to work with health or aged care, those sectors are as unprepared as we are in some ways to work across those service intersections. Deb, would you like to talk about some of the challenges you see in this space? Yeah, thanks, Sarah. The challenges probably aren't new. There was protocols and processes in place previously, but the gaps, there are gaps now with the introduction of the NDIS as we change into this new sort of environment. 
and there was liaison people within hospitals. There were processes such as um, the disability applications for funding. There were protocols uh, around ACAS for people going into being considered for residential care who were young people. And these processes and protocols have probably now lapsed and there's a gap and we need to find new mechanisms to to figure out how to work more together and bring people together. So when we identify that there are there are situations where people come into hospital from disability um, facilities or from home um, or newly acquired. We need to start to understand how to bring people together into that space and respectfully work and negotiate, I guess, between each other for the outcomes of that individual. Fiona, what do you see as some of the challenges in this new environment? I think Deb and Bronwyn have highlighted a number of them. And it is that it's new. There are processes that are lacking that have not been put in place yet. Old systems have been broken down and are changing and need to change. The introduction of the NDIS has been a stage transition, but it's been very rapid. And the priority has been around getting people into the scheme. And some of the processes that support people, and particularly people with complex needs in terms of review, change of circumstance, those processes are not as robust as they could be, and they're not as responsive as they need to be. And while we're still developing what those new processes are, how they actually work in practice rather than just on paper, there is... um, that falling through the gaps for some people in terms of that coordinated um, response, but also the knowledge of who's responsible for what and how those systems need to integrate and work together. And that's coupled with um, new roles and responsibilities being introduced, such as support coordination, that people are still not sure of what that means and how that looks in practice There's also a lack of housing options and other options for people within this sector that just compounds those difficulties in understanding what those new processes are and how systems can work together to meet the needs of an individual. Thank you. Bronwyn, when you're seeing some good outcomes being achieved for participants in this NDIS and health interface, what are you seeing as some of the factors contributing to when we are getting good outcomes? I think mostly it's with, and I think this is something that um, we're seeing across the board, there's genuine desire to do good things from everybody. People don't start with a desire to not do that. So I think people are very keen to get the best outcomes for the people they work with, whether that's from health, aged care or from disability. So that's a great place to start. I think we've already heard a little bit about the idea of who's responsible for what, um, coming from the COEC principles, which has some relevance, but I think there's also another part to that. It's also sometimes that many sectors are responsible together, and how do we knit that together is really where the, the challenge lies, I think. Um, as I was saying before, we haven't had great experience in doing that, so the skills about how we might do that are, are something we have to build. But where there's that, if we can work from that genuine desire to do best for the people we work with, and 
I think Deb's already mentioned having some respect for people in other sectors and their desire to work with us is also important. But that notion of collaboration, I think, is critical. Having someone who has the knowledge of how those different sectors work is also critical and the capacity to develop good working relationships and sustain them. Um, it isn't just about meeting someone once and that's that. It, it, it's about how do we develop a good working relationship and build that to the point where we can start to develop often new ways of service delivery, new ways of working together that are very, very needed. So I think if we can bear that in mind, that people are there for the best reasons and to do the best they can, uh, we can get the outcome we're after. Deb, have you got a comment about some of the enablers that you're seeing that is resulting good outcomes? Yeah, look, I just build on what Bron said, I think, and she's talked about a lot about relationships and, and collaboration. So relationships, building those relationships and using those carefully within the variety of areas of, you know, across the program areas. But I also think it is about the facilitation, having somebody at the moment, while it's not a natural thing to have happen, collaboration doesn't come naturally for, for people across these um, different sectors. And so there does need to be a facilitation, somebody who takes some leadership in facilitating and bringing together people to, as I said before, to respectfully negotiate um, who is responsible at whatever point in time. And through the, some of the work that we've been doing, um, we found that that facilitation and that coordination of everybody has been an enabler to achieve those outcomes for people. Hmm. So we're hearing about the importance of collaboration, development of relationships and that facilitation. I wonder, Fiona, is there any other enablers that you think are, are critical to supporting good outcomes? One of the things is making sure that the systems enable that cooperation, that there is actually um, robustness in there and the people are employed within those systems to enable that to occur. One of the things that we are seeing that I think is promising that started in the Western Melbourne and Bringback Melton regions is the start of the NDIS complex needs pathway where we are seeing a much more connected relationship between NDIS planners, support coordinators, people with disability, and that acknowledgement that needs change and that there needs to be a more timely response from the agency to accommodate those changes of needs and that the funding uh, role of the NDIS is important to enable that cooperation and collaboration to occur and that complex needs pathway is acknowledging that for an individual, there are personal factors that might make their situation complex, but also there are situational factors which might relate to things such as their accommodation, the support that they need in their accommodation, the support that they have within their environment. Uh, and that acknowledgement is now coming and there are processes that are starting to emerge and protocols um, and systems that will mean that that responsiveness is there in the system that we haven't seen to date. Deb, you had something further. Yeah, I'd just add that I think one of the other enablers is starting to change people's mindset about not thinking that everything needs to be driven by government, um, that we have to work together 
and find these mechanisms to make this, to come together. And that there's too often a, a sort of a, a no to things before we actually then can say, well, how can we actually break through this? It's not, you know, no can't be the first answer um, because, oh, we're not allowed to do that or this system doesn't fund that or we can't do this and take this responsibility at this point in time. We sort of have to change that and we have to figure out a way to very much work together. And I know I keep saying that, but it is about bringing people together and really being in this this complex group. There are a lot of barriers and challenges to work through. There are housing issues and all of that, but everyone has different tensions and different timeframes, and we have to massage that into a response that's going to work um, for that individual at that time. And that might change three months down the track, six months down the track. But at that time, those responsibilities need to be taken on collectively. Fiona, how do you see the NDIS processes and pricing uh, support work at the interface? I think fundamentally, um, going back to the premise of the NDIS, it's about funding people's disability support needs. And the funding that's assigned to people has to relate to their disability, but it also takes into those factors that Bronwyn's highlighted, that what are the responsibilities of other service systems, what are the reasonable expectations of community, of informal supports, and how do we bring all those together in a coordinated manner that is what the individual wants. And I think that understanding those and that interplay between all of those service sectors is one of the things that will assist us seeing really good outcomes. And it's we're still in the infancy of that happening. I think one of the key roles within the development of the NDIS was the support coordination role, which was looking at coordinating those different services for people who have complexity within their situation. So looking at both their personal factors and their support factors, and if they do um, have interface with some of those mainstream support services. What we've seen to date has been a largely a focusing on the connection to those funded disability supports and not the coordination within community informal supports and with those mainstream interfaces. And I think as we see the maturing of that role of support coordination in understanding what it's about, but also looking at how we can really develop that in practice, that there will be better outcomes. But at the moment, that's a role that's still really not understood and not fully developed. That coupled with us moving in disability to an activity-based funding model where people are funded generally for the face-to-face work that they do with an individual has created challenges within the sector of how they approach their work. And for a lot of services, the challenge relates back to that unit cost price for that, that in terms of what is there left in the back of house for the coordination, the supervision, the support in delivering those one-to-one services. So as services uh, reorient, re-look at their business models, look at their service viability and put things in place that allow them to be flexible, allow them to have sustainable businesses, we should see uh, a strengthening of that work and understanding of their roles. So I think it's that we're still developing an understanding of what and how the NDIS fund supports, but also what are emerging new roles within that NDIS 
landscape. Bronwyn. Sarah, I just wanted to add a little bit to that. I think Fiona's made a very good point about the support coordinator role being poorly defined and poorly understood. And I think in its initial being, it was really about how to link the person with services from a disability perspective. There was a sort of an unspoken expectation that other service systems like health or housing would actually leap up and do their thing, whatever that was supposed to be. So Fiona's quite right. This is very, very poorly understood and is still not well-defined. And I don't think it has the skill set yet to be able to traverse those different systems. But one of the things support coordinators are not allowed to do is advocacy. Yet in all the things that we're talking about and how do we get different service systems to come to work together better, the person at the heart of this, if it's going to be the support coordinator, is inevitably going to come across into some sort of advocacy. And I don't mean the old type of advocacy, a very different sort of advocacy that involves how do we get people to work together better to the betterment of the individual that we're all trying to support well. So I just wanted to say that I think that's something that we're going to have to address. I think Deb's point before about this being an area that would be better block funded in the past as a case management offering, um, non, non-profit organisations, non-government organisations had that role. Maybe we need to look at going back to that again and returning to a block funding um, environment for this very critical role. Um, that is, I think, going to have to embrace some forms of advocacy, but from a very different perspective. Mm. At the round table the other day, the issue of advocacy came up loud and strong as a critical enabler. We're going to actually play a comment made by Sarah Forbes from Valid speaking at the round table. And we're also going to hear a comment from a family member of an NDIS participant reflecting on his experiences. Look, I think for me the most important thing and has been the most important thing and will continue to be but is easily lost is making sure that the person who is involved in making some change in their life, whether they're having a health crisis or coming out of a health crisis or are just in hospital and actually have additional needs that aren't met in that space, that it's the person's voice at the centre of it. What Valid hears over and over again is other people making decisions on behalf of an adult who can demonstrate one way or another. Maybe the way to understand that person is quite complicated for other people, but it actually doesn't mean you don't have to get to the bottom of what it is that's going to work for that person, what they primarily want. And for us, what we're seeing through a range of processes, including with the NDIS, um, is that people with intellectual disability, particularly people with complex communication support needs or behaviour support needs, is that they're not actually asked what they want and nor is anyone prepared to spend the time uh, or make the effort to actually understand that person in the way that they are telling their story. And sometimes it's complicated to do that, right? doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. And I think the real risk in any of these situations is that that person is somehow sidelined from the discussion about what should happen. And what we're seeing at the moment is people with intellectual disabilities entering hospital at higher rates than ever before, getting stuck in that system. Um, Sometimes the NDIs won't allow their support workers to visit them in hospital. And these are people in many cases that have no family. 
So no one visits. Sometimes they haven't eaten for days because the hospital doesn't know how to support the person with their eating. No one has supported them to engage in any of the ordinary things that they would do and people harm themselves in those settings. And there's a cascading effect there and often those people can't return to where they were living before. So for us at the moment at Valid, the critical health issue is really about making sure that in the first place as much as possible we keep people out of acute settings, out of hospitals. That's what everybody in the community wants. No one wants to be in hospital if they can avoid it. So good health care um, in the community in the first place, which can be very hard to come by if you have an intellectual disability, um, particularly if you have uh, behaviours of concern. Uh, but then when you're in hospital, that the NDIs can be flexible about making sure that your disability support needs are met where there's specialist needs that a hospital is unable to provide. And that's just the reality. What we don't want to see is a consistent back and forward, a tennis game between uh, the NDIS and other interfaces, particularly health, but also we're seeing it in justice at Ballard. Um, but in health situations, there's a lot of buck passing going on. The health system should provide individualised support in hospital. But what if that person has such specific support needs that really they can only receive showering support from someone they know really well? And a lot of the time that's because they've been in settings, institutional settings, or settings where they've been isolated, secluded, and in many cases treated um, in torturous conditions. And maybe those things happened 20 years ago, but the effect is present now. And sometimes we actually have to make adjustments for people in health settings to make sure they're well supported. And then where are people going to go? Where is the housing for people that want to live by themselves, that need to live by themselves, and that the support can come to them? And for us, those are the critical issues at the moment. And I think probably issues with the health interface is probably one of the biggest um, uh, reasons people are calling valid at the moment. And very, very tricky to unpack that without people coming to the table to try and figure out, one, what the person wants and what's going to work really well for them, and then secondly, how we would pull all of that together to make that happen. And I think that's the key to it. Well, having been faced with a family member that's put into the situation where they uh, require hospitalisation and then trying to find a solution to get him back to his home and his normal environment... Uh, has been a significant challenge because there's, I don't know, eight, nine, ten different organisations that have uh, a part of the jigsaw puzzle and until all of those organisations come together, I think, uh, and work as one in one common direction, it's going to be a frustrating exercise for anyone else coming through it. I consider myself being one of the lucky ones. Uh, we're through, we've got a solution, it's been hard work and I take my hat off to the people who have fought and worked with us to make that happen because as an individual or as a family we would not have coped or had had uh, a solution or an answer so it's been a been a very emotional roller coaster for us but we now have one happy smiling person who's um, um, living the life again once we knew what we had to do we got on and made it happen but I made n numerous multiple phone calls to different organisations. I did hours and hours of research on, on the internet trying to find an answer. And that was the frustrating part of not being able to come up with a, a place somewhere I could go to and not 
you go to a library and take out a book and find your solution. This didn't have that, and it was only through the resources that come together in the hospital to start with, uh, three or four individuals who took a very uh, strong advocacy role uh, and supported what we wanted to do and made it happen. So that's why we got to where we are, because of some people who believed that not only um, this case, but for others, that there needs to be a new solution because the old one uh, isn't practical and isn't working. Bronwyn, have you got any reflections on those comments from Sarah and the brother of the participant? Thanks, Sarah. Yes, I I think um, Sarah raises a really interesting dynamic there and offers us a bit of a a snapshot of where the intersection between two service systems, which are disability and health, can work together. Sarah mentioned the support workers coming into hospital and the NDIS doesn't often allow that. There's a challenge for the hospital, and we see this with aged care as well, not so much yet because it's still starting there, but both of those service systems have a duty of care to those people when they're in their systems. And here we're saying another service system, the NDIS, is going to come into play. There's some discussion, some negotiation around that duty of care that has to happen so that everybody feels confident about the person coming into their space operating in the ways that they know they can best do, but giving the others in the space who work there mostly confidence that good things are happening and the person is being well supported. I think that was a a really interesting one where we could have support workers coming in and I'm sure the health staff would be tremendously pleased to have that extra help too. But at the moment, we've we've done nothing to address how that might work. So I think there was a, a little bit of a snapshot there that shows us. And I think the, the brother of the participant said it very well. Old solutions are just not working. We've got to look to new ways to get to where we want to be. And it it involves, as we've said so well in this podcast, us all working together to do that. Thanks, Bronwyn. Deb, did you have a comment? I think... One of the things that's highlighted for me in those comments was the need to understand the backstory of that individual. That in this in this round table, um, when this person was in hospital, there wasn't perhaps an understanding of how long that person had lived with some friends, and the importance of being very clear about this was about getting him home. And that perhaps there needs to be some consideration around future planning. So where we know that people with either progressive conditions or where we know that there are changing needs um, attached to a disability, that the importance of understanding what does that person want in the future um, so that we're not making decisions or informing decisions around what's very acute, that we actually come to working through the outcome with full knowledge and understanding of that person more comprehensively. And I think that future planning is really, really important along with that joint planning and the need for all of the parties to come together to contribute, as the brother said, Um, that everyone has a a part to play in putting that puzzle together. Mm. And I think that comment about the the future and taking that 
planning and that taking that longer term view, it aligns really well with Sarah Forbes' comment about keeping the focus on the individual right through because that's where you need that long-term planning and understanding of the history as well. Thank you, Deb. Sarah, I think one of the things that's really important that Sarah from Valid brought up is that the people that we're working with often have complex communication, behaviour support needs, and when they're in other settings, these um, needs a specialist response. And it's clear within the bilateral agreements that those supports should continue while people are in hospital, but we're not seeing this in practice. So it's one of the things that the COAG principles brought up, that your behaviour support, your communication needs support should continue whilst you're in hospital settings. But what we see in practice is the NDIS saying that those supports uh, are now the hospital's responsibility. Um, But it's clear within the agreements that it's not, that for the people who clearly identified have additional behaviour support, complex communication needs, that that's an ongoing funding responsibility of the NDIS. So I think that we've still got a lot of work to do in getting that policy into practice and that guidance. How does this work in a coordinated, collaborative fashion so that the individual has the right supports that they need? Mm. So I think we can see both that the importance of those relationships and so forth, but also some of those system issues have to come together. Deb? Yeah, I'd add that that people are still not necessarily trying to find a way around that they're still, you know, very siloed in their way of doing things and not wanting to embark on trying to go around or over or under um, or not upset the apple cart in a way. And so even with this situation, and I you know, draw on your Fiona that many of the health services will talk about the length of stay for people um, like this participant in hospital. And what we see is the deterioration of that person's need because their needs are not understood. And in this situation, we certainly did see a significant decline in this person before we were able to then get him home. Thank you. So we've been talking quite a bit about the importance of relationships, facilitation and and that collaboration between people working at the interface and and all trying to do their best. What about at that kind of system level? What do people think about that? Deb, you're working a lot in and with hospitals at the interface. What's their perspective? The hospital, the health services are, are struggling with the engagement and having a single point of contact with the NDIS. They are finding that they are often um, have long stay patients in hospital because the patients can't return home without supports. They're skilling themselves up. And they're doing the best they can, but they're acute services and subacute services who have their own um, timeframes and funding constraints, and they're not really understanding exactly how to uh, navigate through some of the barriers and the slow processes of the NDIS. Thanks, Deb. Yes, yeah, so really challenging for hospitals, isn't it? Yes, the moment. Fiona, what do you see at that more of that system level, how we can get better at working at the interface? I think timeliness is one of the big key 
um, attributes. We now have um, planners' numbers or names on plans, so you know who to go back and contact, which we didn't have for a long time. Um, so that if someone does have a change of circumstance or needs something different in their plan, you at least know who to contact within the NDIS. It's a small step, but a really important step. So within that hospital sector section, who do I go to? Who do I talk to? Because it's always someone different. And I think that that coordinating that response, having a, someone, whether it is with outside that planning system um globally that looks at those relationships between the mainstream interfaces and the disability sector because it's not clear cut and it never will be that what is a, a support that should be funded under NDIS? What are the universal service obligations of hospitals? So if someone has acute health needs, yes, that's the hospital's responsibility. But if they're still in hospital because there's nowhere for them to go and live, that's not the hospital's responsibility. That's an accommodation, a disability support and, and other complex support systems needs um, responsibility but they're in hospital because there's nowhere else to go. So it's looking at who is responsible for or who has the power or the weight, I suppose, if you like to look at it that way, to be able to bring those systems together to work for that individual from a, a systems perspective, but also from what's the best outcome for that participant. And I suppose, do we see it as the uh, responsibility of the state government, the NDIS, um, the federal government, where do we see the, or is it everyone? Bronwyn, have you got a comment on that? Thanks, Sarah. Yeah, I, look, I think in a general sense, we're all responsible. All the services are responsible. And when Fiona was talking, I was thinking, yes, they will all bring particular pieces of knowledge into play for an individual. But more than that, I think all of these service systems have a real... Um, there's a benefit for them in working collaboratively with the NDIS. And so they, they've got some skin in the game and I think they need to stand up and show that they've got skin in the game by starting to fund some of these really broad-ranging areas. Um, service coordination, as it evolves, it may well be something that health or aged care or housing decides to put some money into with the NDIS, for example. A radical suggestion, I know, but still. Um, you know, if we're going to really be talking about genuine partnership then we need to start to see that happening, I think. So I think in terms of who is it, I think we're all in there. We've all got something to offer. And it's as Deb has said before and Fiona's alluded to as well, how do we wrap that up? How do we bring that together and have the leadership uh, being demonstrated to make it so? Thanks, Bromont. I'd just like to add in, Sarah, my favourite COAG overriding principle is that the interactions for people with disability with the NDIS and other service systems should be as seamless as possible where integrated planning and coordinated supports, referrals and transitions are promoted, supported by a non-wrongdoor approach. And this is my dream. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I think we can all support that. We certainly all do support that. And if I could add in that this is where support coordination doesn't come in early enough often for people in hospitals. So the hospital is trying to navigate the support or the access to the NDIS for somebody. A planning meeting might be held within the hospital service but there is limited handover then. Um, once that plan has been um, received, then there has to be a support coordinator appointed. 
and that takes time. And often then the support coordinator isn't, you know, present at the planning meeting and so they don't have the context about what that plan is and nor do they have the other knowledge of what what the other uh, service areas have to offer. So there really is a need for there to be a much more integrated planning um, approach where the NDIS is part of that planning, not the whole plan um, being developed with them alone, that the other service programs um, or service systems need to be involved in that very centrally involved in that planning process. So there needs to be some joint planning. Hmm. So we've we've touched on the idea of even some joint funding of some areas and that joint planning. So really trying to knit those service systems together to work together closely and build on those relationships and the collaboration we've touched on. And then we'll see some good outcomes. The insights gleaned from our recent roundtable point to a shared responsibility. Every organisation operating in this environment has a responsibility to act, whether funder, health, justice or service provider. Despite the multi-jurisdictional nature of working at the interfaces, an important emphasis remains to centralise our work around the voice of the person, as articulated by Sarah Forbes, and to build things around the person rather than having a mindset focusing on what the system can or cannot provide. One of our roundtable representatives put it best with the concluding comment, everyone has to put their part of the jigsaw puzzle together to get the best result for the participant. We need to make a trail for other people who are at risk of being left behind. So I'd like to thank our podcast guests today, Fiona, Deb and Bronwyn, for your reflections. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks, Sarah. It's been an absolute pleasure. Look forward to the next one. Great. (laughs) Thanks, Sarah, very much. We acknowledge this is a complex and contested space and hope that this podcast discussion provides some insights for the sector and that the identification of key enablers can help us all to achieve better outcomes. If you found this podcast helpful, be sure to listen to the other episodes available that explore a range of NDIS topics. Thank you. Is your organisation a member of NDS? National Disability Services is your peak body for service providers across Australia. Our members entrust us to represent them and to unify our collective strength to fight for a more inclusive future for people with disability. Join today via nds.org.au and uncover a range of supports that will assist your organisation navigate the challenges and opportunities of the sector. The Sector Development Podcast is a production by National Disability Services. The podcast is produced with funding from the Victorian State Government's NDIS Transition Support Package.